Hello, everybody, and thank you for joining in to the Tangled Roots podcast, a podcast about the root causes of migration from Latin America. My name is Joseph Flores, and I'm your host. In today's episode, we'll be looking at one of the most widely recognized factors truly driving people to leave their communities and even their countries, criminal gangs. An underlying theme of this podcast that I think it's worth making explicit is that the decision to migrate is an expression of agency. When people come to the United States in search of jobs, safety, or family, they're making a decision to improve their lives. That said, this can be a decision taken in dire circumstances. In the case of those who are fleeing criminal gangs and other violence, it's a direct choice between life or death. And while the Biden administration often cites gangs as one of the root causes of migration, there's a part of that story that typically goes unspoken. There's a lot of folklore behind these gangs, but it is absolutely true. They did not start in Central America. They started in the United States. They specifically started in Los Angeles. Today, I'll be speaking with Dr. Michael Paulberg, assistant professor in political science at VCU, where he studies immigration and security in Latin America. We'll go through the origins and operations of the gangs causing so many people to flee their homes and how the United States both created and continues to fuel the problem. Dr. Michael Paulberg, thank you for joining me today. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. The Northern Triangle is well known to be a place with high levels of violence. Prior to the appearance of modern criminal gangs, Guatemala and El Salvador went through vicious civil wars throughout the 1980s and into the 1990s that left legacies influencing the situation today. What are some examples of these legacies, and how do they shape the violence we see currently in Central America? You can trace a direct line back of the current conflict involving crime, and particularly organized crime with gangs, to general instability that trace back to civil conflict. You can go back to the coup of 1954 in Guatemala if you want. But broadly speaking, both El Salvador and Guatemala suffered long and brutal civil wars. Guatemala's was especially brutal. It has been described as a genocide against the indigenous Mayan people. It lasted much longer from 1960 until 1996. El Salvador's officially was from 1980 until 1992, uh, ending with the Treaty of Chapultepec. But conflict had been going on, on and off before then, and many people would say uh, in other forms has persisted. There are a lot of legacies of these wars. There is a legacy of brutality, of scorched earth tactics by governments to defeat guerrilla groups, which very easily morphed into uh, mano dura policing policies, which we'll discuss later. Also of vigilantism of the deputizing of civilians by governments and arming of civilians by governments to go after guerrillas or later on uh, delinquents, people accused of crime, as well as simply the uh, mass expulsion of large populations, sometimes actually forcible expulsions by military actions, but also just the fleeing of hundreds of thousands of people, many of whom to the United States seeking uh, a better life, but also uh, refuge from this violence. As you've described, the civil wars in Central America were filled with acts of atrocities and crimes against humanity, many of which have since been recognized as such by the international community. In the wake of the wars, however, these crimes went unpunished as guerrilla groups and governments at the time pursued peace over accountability. 
What impact do these legacies of impunity have on the situation in Central America today? Impunity for uh, regimes that committed human rights violations is not unique to Central America, of course. Political scientists describe this period in the 1990s, especially, of return to democratic rule as the third wave of democratization in the world. And most of these transitions to democracy were what we call pacted transitions. These were negotiations at an elite level between military regimes and elites in the opposition. They did not have a lot of buy-in from regular people on the ground. Understandably, a priority of these agreements, especially priority of the then opposition, was a cessation of violence and a guarantee that the regimes would step down peacefully and remain out of power. Thus, they had to trade a lot of benefits, including the benefit of impunity. Oftentimes, these involved blanket immunity and the suppression of any investigations. The military wanted to do anything to prevent feeling that they were going to uh, be prosecuted for their crimes. Now, I have to say that this did not go on forever. And in many countries, there were efforts by legislatures, by judges, by Supreme Courts who would overturn these uh, immunity laws. Now, unique to Central America, there were some resolutions of these that involved international bodies that came in and did investigations on behalf of governments that many people didn't fully trust to get to the bottom of these crimes. In Guatemala, they invited in the United Nations. The United Nations helped broker the 1996 peace deal. And 10 years later, they inaugurated a partnership with the Guatemalan government called Sisi, Mission Against Impunity in Guatemala. This was quite a success. In fact, it ended up being a victim of its own success. It was brought in primarily to investigate organized crime. It was very careful not to be political and not to announce that any of its targets might be politicians. But in the end, it did end up convicting a president, a vice president, many top officials of corruption. This put that organization, that agency in the crosshairs and was eventually uh, shut down. Uh, by a subsequent uh, Guatemalan government that CC was investigating. In other countries, uh, there have been agencies that were adopted somewhat modeled after CC. In Honduras, there was something called Machi, and in El Salvador, current President Bukele actually announced and inaugurated an investigative body called CCS, modeled after CC, and then he shut it down once it started investigating corruption in his own health ministry. So essentially, this was a useful model for uh, fighting back against impunity, but a lot of the problem is once that model becomes too successful, politicians start getting worried and they shut them down. In modern times, many people are aware that one of the primary perpetrators of violence in Central America are gangs. But they may not be aware of the fact that many of these gangs have their origins in the United States. Who were the founders and original members of these gangs and how did they wind up getting started? Well, the stories about the founding of the, the famous gangs, Marcelo Trucha, MS-13, and Barrio 18, also known as 18th Street in the United States, are a little bit shrouded in mystery. There's a lot of myth-making going on. There's a lot of folklore behind these gangs, but it is absolutely true. They did not start in Central America. They started in the United States. They specifically started in Los Angeles. Now, one of these legacies we talked about of these civil conflicts was a very large diaspora of refugees who fled the conflict ended up largely in the United States, and many of them ending up in the Los Angeles area. 
Now, according to folklore, and I think this is uh, largely true, these gangs were originally founded somewhat as self-defense for newcomers in poor neighborhoods in Los Angeles, which already had a large gang presence, including a large gang presence of Chicano gangs. But these newcomers were not Chicano. They're not Mexican-American. They were Central American. And according to them, were picked on, harassed, bullied. And these would be young people, teenagers, who were not yet fully socialized into the United States and not yet fully socialized into uh, their own neighborhoods. So according to the story, uh, MS-13 was founded, originally called the Mara Salvatruja Stoners, which gives you a sense of about how serious they were. They were essentially a group of teenagers who liked to smoke pot and listen to heavy metal. In particular, their favorite bands were Black Sabbath and Judas Priest. They adopted some of their quasi-satanic hand signs from their favorite bands. 18th Street, which is named after 18th Street in the Pico Union neighborhood of Los Angeles, was actually an older gang, which goes back to the 1960s. So it pre-existed, but unlike some of the other more exclusively Chicano gangs, they allowed Central Americans to join them and quickly became effectively a gang for Central American kids. Now that said, these gangs at first, they were definitely street gangs. They were doing bad things, involved in crime, but they were nowhere near the size, the scale. They did not have the uh, fearsome reputation and certainly not the murderous record of what we now know as MS-13 and Barrios de Ocho. some of your previous writing, you've described how the early era of mass incarceration in the 1980s set the groundwork for these gangs' sophistication and expansion, essentially moving from what you've just described, petty street gangs, into more mature criminal organizations. How did this transformation take place? Well, as you alluded to, it really took place within the California penal system. And there are specific moments in history that we can point to. One in particular is the 1984 Summer Olympics in Los Angeles, in which the Los Angeles Police Department initiated a citywide gang sweep in which they wanted to clear up the streets ahead of the Olympics. And they ended up locking up, let's just be honest, all the black and brown kids they could find on the streets and send them to prison on oftentimes petty charges the kinds of things that these gangs of juvenile delinquents are doing, like selling marijuana, things like that. Once they got into the prison system, though, uh, they effectively became institutionalized. And there are a lot of unique things to California prison culture, including certain gangs pay tribute to more established prison gangs. The most established one that became most important for the story was the Mexican Mafia, so the Mara Salvatruch stoners started paying tribute to the Mexican mafia, uh, M being the 13th letter in the alphabet, they adopted that to their name. So they became MS-13. 18th Street Gang as well got initiated in the same structures, the same hierarchies, and this essentially made them a much better organized gang. Many of these gangs to this day are primarily led by people who are incarcerated. This is now the model for both 18th Street Gang and MS-13 in the U.S. and in Central America. 
After some years maturing in U.S. prisons, these gangs were deported by the U.S. government to Central America as a result of various criminal justice and immigration reforms passed in the 1990s. What were these reforms, and how did they lead to the exportation of these gangs into the Northern Triangle, just as the region was transitioning into what was supposed to be a time of peace? Right. So 1996 is the other critical juncture in the development of the gangs and in particular the moment when the gangs became a problem for Central America. Remember, up till this point, these gangs only existed in the United States. They were being dealt with by U.S. law enforcement. They were not considered a broad social problem. 1996, uh, two pieces of legislation were passed and signed by President Bill Clinton. One was the Anti-Terrorism and Effective Death Penalty Act of 1996, which ironically was passed in response to the Oklahoma City bombing, which obviously street gangs had nothing to do with, Central Americans had nothing to do with. And the other one, uh, more famously, the Illegal Immigration Reform and Immigrant Responsibility Act, also known as IRA-IRA, also of 1996. The combination of these two laws both broadened the scope of people who were deportable and also broadened the offenses under which someone could be deported. So essentially, you are deportable if you do not have papers in the United States. However, there are different priorities for people and an immigration enforcement, now known as ICE, will prioritize people who committed crimes. But what kinds of crimes? Well, since 1996, those crimes could include things like drunk driving or public urination, or uh, in some cases that I have served on as an expert witness, something called public scandal, something very vague. Essentially, this greatly ramped up deportations. This inaugurated the current modern era of mass deportation to many countries, but especially countries in the Northern Triangle of Central America. This led to plane loads, daily plane loads of young people with criminal records, the vast majority of them not with gang affiliations, but some of them with them, who were ending up in El Salvador, Guatemala, Honduras, and they had no support network for themselves. They had no jobs waiting for them. Oftentimes, they didn't really speak Spanish all that well because they spent most of their lives in the United States. They were certainly not socialized into the cultures, into the norms of the countries uh, that they were being sent to. Certain things, including all these stories about how these were terrible gangbangers, effectively made them unemployable in these countries. So what did they do? Some of them that had gang ties reconstituted those gangs in those countries. Others that did not have gang ties were forcibly recruited into them, or they had no other choice than to turn to petty crime. This greatly expanded the scale. This effectively made these gangs transnational criminal organizations. And they also went from being primarily based in a country that was a wealthy country with lots of resources to deal with crime at a time when crime was actually starting to decline precipitously in the United States two countries that had very few resources and did not really know how to react. They reacted often in the most extreme way with heavy police response that was known collectively as Monodura policies. So we're now in a situation in which what were once these small street gangs have become more sophisticated criminal organizations and are put into an environment with weak rule of law and these legacies of violence from the war that we described earlier. We've talked a bit about who these major gangs are, MS-13 and Barrio de Ciocho, but I'd like to talk a bit more on how they actually work in Central America. What's their organizational structure? How do they recruit? And what are their main sources of income? They are loosely organized. 
I would say there's a lot of myth-making about these gangs. They are often conflated with mafias or cartels. Mafias or cartels, when you think about that model, you think of essentially a corporation, something that's vertically integrated, hierarchical, has a clear chain of command, involved in many lucrative industries or types of criminal enterprises. The gangs are not that sophisticated. They are large in the sense they have a large membership, but they effectively operate in a decentralized franchise model. They operate at the local level, and the local level gang is called a clica or a clique. They answer to a leader, a local leader called a palabrero or a, a shot caller. And there are some levels of organization of clicas. Some of them are organized into groups of clicas called programs. And some of these so-called programs are transnational in nature as well. The Sailors Program of MS-13, for example, has chapters in the East Coast of the United States and also in El Salvador proper. However, generally speaking, these clicas are allowed to do whatever they want to do, as long as they kick up some of their proceeds to the higher levels of the gang. At the highest level, the gang is led by, in MS-13, their leadership is collectively known as the Rantla. They are all in prison, and they direct the gangs from the prison. And they have demonstrated the ability to cause chaos by sending word out to uh, clicas to start killing people if they ever want to pressure the governments into negotiations. Generally speaking, what goes on at the street level really is the totality of what the gangs do. They're not really involved in large-scale transnational smuggling. Their drug enterprises are more micro-trafficking, uh, selling drugs at the local level, prostitution at the local level, and especially their main bread and butter is extortion. They run protection rackets, and the people they target, sadly, are poor people in their own communities, street vendors, people who sell pupusas, anyone who has any kind of business. If they're in rural areas, they will, uh, they will extort farms and ranches. Oftentimes, they will just extort regular people who live in their community because they consider themselves to effectively be the local government. And they consider anyone within their territory to be under their domain and thus owe them what they consider to be taxes for the services they provide, which is effectively defending that neighborhood against the rival gang in the next neighborhood over. But essentially what they are doing is they're extorting poor people for just a few dollars here and there. The median age is about 15, 16. They age out of the gangs fairly quickly if they are not killed or go to prison. And the types of squabbles they get into with each other are the kinds of things you often will imagine gangs of teenagers to get into, who has the right to sell drugs in this particular neighborhood. They are not nearly as sophisticated as cartels. It's not to say they are not deadly or dangerous, but they are not necessarily at the same level as what you imagine a typical transnational criminal organization to be. Thank you. I think that's a helpful distinction to make. I want to move now to how we should understand the impact of criminal gangs on migration from the Northern Triangle. Is it as simple as gangs threatening people who then flee the country, or are there other dynamics and processes that we should understand? Well, it's a circular relationship. So obviously the gangs themselves are the product of forced displacement from civil conflict, and then they were transnationalized by the U.S. government through mass deportations, and now they are causing conflict 
chaos or simply extorting people who don't want to be extorted. A lot of people are fleeing them or fleeing a broader situation of high crime, weak rule of law and corruption. These gangs earn money and they use that money to bribe local officials. They have networks within the police and therefore people don't trust the police either. So all of these things combine to create an unstable situation in which people are increasingly looking to leave their neighborhoods and oftentimes their countries in order to flee the instability the gangs create. Something that we've touched on a couple times and now we can come to it squarely is the response strategy to gangs, both by national governments and the United States. You've used this phrase, mano dura, which in English translates to tough hand, as the most exemplary strategy that's been pursued. Could you talk a bit about la mano dura and other types of policies and ways of responding to gangs? The mano dura policing, which effectively means Iron Fist, or I would just say zero tolerance policing, obviously has clear parallels in other countries, including in the United States. In some ways, you can make connections to broken windows philosophy of policing uh, that took off in the NYPD. Effectively, this is a response by governments in the Northern Triangle Central America that lack the resources to do what I would say would be effective community policing. It is a panicked response that involves arresting people on flimsy evidence, vague accusations of gang affiliation, locking them up, oftentimes for a long time without trial, and sentencing people to very long prison sentences, which have swelled the prison population to as much as 400% capacity of the prisons. This makes the prisons themselves concentrations of gangs, recruitment areas for gangs, and effectively ungovernable. They end up being run by the gangs themselves. And once the incarcerated leaders are well ensconced in the prison system, there isn't a whole lot more that the government can do to them. So they're able to effectively run their criminal operations from the inside. Now, this effectively criminalizes large portions of the population. Just to give you an example, El Salvador's Civic National Police, the PNC, has estimated the size of the population that is tied to gangs to be as high as 500,000, which is unbelievably high and also a very suspiciously round number. Effectively, it means that anyone who is of a certain profile, a young man who's a teenager or, or young adult, is arrestable. There could be a reason for them to be arrested or there, there might not be. They may find out what that reason is. They may not. We're seeing this today in the massive gang sweeps that are currently going on in El Salvador with uh, thousands of people who have been arrested in the last couple of weeks, many of whom their neighbors, their families are saying they were minding their own business and just working their jobs, or running a store and got picked up by the police. But effectively, this panicked response was counterproductive. First of all, it swelled the ranks of the gangs by swelling the prison population. It once again made public more distrustful of the police and of the government, and it led to a violent response by the gangs themselves. The gangs started to target members of security forces, sometimes openly. MS-13 had a couple campaigns in which they were openly targeting police officers called Plan Bitter Tears and Plan Orphan Children. So the gangs stopped 
talking about going to war with each other and started talking about going to war with the government. Now, this gets more complicated because, especially in the case of El Salvador, there have been ongoing negotiations with the gang. At the same time, the government is publicly claiming that they are cracking down in the harshest way. They're also making backroom deals involving who knows, because these are all secret and always denied by the government. But it seems especially obvious that these involve disappearances. The homicide rate is a very sensitive political issue. Governments have been elected or lost elections on the basis of having high homicide rates. And so it seems very clear with the homicide rates dropping, but disappearance rates going up proportionally in El Salvador, that one part of this gang pact is the Salvadoran government telling the gangs, you do a better job of hiding bodies and we won't try so hard to find them. Just to drill in on the United States' role in these responses, how has the United States supported Manudura policies? And what has been the role of U.S. security assistance to those countries in their response to gangs? The U.S. has effectively supported Manudura policing. There has been a lot of police training. Now, the U.S. will say that includes human rights training, things like data-driven policing. But effectively, the United States sees insecurity, including criminal insecurity, as a driver of migration. And their main focus on the Northern Triangle has been to contain emigration from that region. If they believe that a policing policy will lead to safer streets and therefore fewer people fleeing, they will and they have supported it. I would just say that history has shown that most of those policies that have been supported have been unsuccessful. I think today, people in the U.S. government, people who work on things like CARSI, the Security Initiative for Central America, recognize that it is a failed policy, especially because so many of these policies kept failing and they kept rebranding them. So first there was Plan Marodura in El Salvador, and then when that didn't work, the new administration called it Plan Super Marodura, and now President Bukele calls it Plan Control Territorial, but essentially it's like super, super Marodura. They never work. Sadly, the only thing that really does work is negotiations with the gangs. I don't think the U.S. government or any government is going to openly admit that this is true or that this is a valid policy, even though in my opinion it is, as long as it's just not secretive. Despite the political unpopularity and risk in openly negotiating with gangs, you mentioned that this is, in fact, one of the most effective ways to deal with them. How do you think that these governments in the United States should revise their approach to reduce the size and lethality of gang presence in Central America? as well as to stop the displacement that stems from the gangs. Well, in Central America, as I've alluded to, there have been ongoing secret negotiations with the gangs. I don't see a fundamental problem with that in principle. I mean, the United States negotiated with the Taliban. There's no fundamental reason why a government cannot negotiate with what they consider to be a terrorist or enemy combatant or something like that. However, there are better ways to do it. The problem is these uh, deals are always secret, they're always denied, and that incentivizes, I think, corruption, which we have seen, especially in the case of El Salvador, not just the deals they make with the gangs, but things like embezzlement of public funds by the director of the prisons, use of COVID relief packages for political campaigns. There's just a general ambience of corruption that goes into any kind of secret negotiation. It has been shown first under the Funes government in El Salvador and now under the Bukele government that negotiations with gangs can actually bring down the murder rate. So if this is done in a more transparent way with public buy-in, then I think that is a defensible practice. 
I would not say that is a resolution to the problem as a whole. More fundamentally, the problem is a lack of public resources, lack of job opportunities, lack of rule of law. Social services do not reach the people who need them the most. And from the United States' perspective, or from the United States' side, a continued policy of mass deportations. Deportations themselves just feed the gangs. They feed them with potential new recruits, and they feed them with victims. Gangs are known to target people who have family members in the United States because they know they receive remittances. So if there's one thing that the United States could do to help the situation, it would be to stop deporting so many people. If they have to deport people, do a much better job than they are in making sure those people have social services and jobs waiting for them so that they do not easily fall victim to the same cycle of violence. It seems like we've come full circle in that one of the best ways to combat the influence and strength of gangs would be to stop the practices that brought them to Central America in the first place. I agree. Now, this is an unpopular thing to say in the United States, that there's always been bipartisan support for deportations and specifically for criminal deportations. Think back to when President Obama was running for re-election. And of course, we all know President Obama deported more people than Trump did, than other presidents did. He bragged about how we're deporting gangbangers. Well, a lot of people who are being deported, even ones who have criminal records, they have criminal records for, you know, petty offenses. I think it would behoove the United States government to seriously rethink what they consider to be a, a grave offense that is worthy of deportation, especially considering we have the resources here in the U.S. to deal with crime. Now, crime rates are going up a little bit in the United States recently, in recent couple of years, but overall crime rates are much lower than they were in the 1990s. Um, and we cannot expect countries that are far poorer than we are to deal with a far greater organized crime problem than they have ever dealt with in the past. Just to give you another example, I mean, the entire budget of the country of El Salvador is only a little bit bigger than the budget of Montgomery County, Maryland. This is a country that has, you know, has to deal with what they claim to be 500,000 people who have gang ties. It's just, it's unrealistic. Either the U.S. sends a lot more money to these countries to deal with this problem, or they can try to stop the problem at the source, which is mass deportation. Thank you, Dr. Paulberg, for your time. Really appreciate you joining me. My pleasure. That's our show, everybody. Next time, we'll take a look at other forms of violence that plague people in Central America and how the United States can take steps to reduce them. Thank you for tuning into this show. This podcast is produced by myself in collaboration with the Strauss Center for International Law and Security. My name is Joseph Flores, and this is Tangled Roots. <laughs>